All right, so Matthew is not where we're at. Second Samuel is where we're at. Not sure where that came from. Uh, May the 17th, we're going to have a live stream for help for families, for husbands and wives. It's on marriage, and it ought to be well intended. We need to know if you're going to come or not because we need to prepare that we have enough chairs, enough tables but it's a deal where we'll meet in the coffee bar and we'll watch the live stream somewhere else. They're going to be doing the, the teaching. And uh, it's the Chan family and Parrot family and then that comedian guy. I'm not sure who he is, but I'm sure he's funny or he wouldn't be called a comedian. So that'll be good. Uh, and so sign up and, and look, Susan and I are coming. We've been here a long time. Uh, you know, I, she married a perfect fella and we don't have any troubles. But uh, every marriage, we've got to work on it, right? We've got uh, husbands and wives have got to work on it. And this is an opportunity for you to get together and, and do a little work. So I hope that you'll come and hope that we have so many people that we've got to bring in chairs from all kinds of places and get that done. So that's May the 17th, a Friday night. Uh, doors be open at 6.30. You can get your table. And then the show begins at 7.00. So you'll want to be in place long before 7 o'clock, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the story, and we're going to take it in three stages, it looks like. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. This is the story of another one of David's uh, issues, problems, weaknesses, and he commits adultery with her. Years ago... When Bill Clinton lied to the, to the grand jury about uh, that he did not have any kind of sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, uh, he was uh, in a legal battle, legal battle, battle for his uh, presidency. And uh, probably came close to losing it. But in the process of all that, after it was all said and done, he did an interview with Dan Rather. And Dan Rather was, uh, back in the day, he was the CBS's leading, you know, uh, reporter, I guess, uh, TV personality. And Dan Rather asked Bill Clinton why he committed this sexual uh, act in the White House and what was going on. And Bill Clinton's answer was, because I could. Now, back in the day, if my memory is correct, there was lots of uh, conflict over that answer and that mindset. And Bill Clinton went on to say that it was painful for his family. It was painful for everybody involved and so forth and so on. But I, but when, but I think that when he said, because I could, that may, that may have been one of the most truthful things that Bill Clinton has ever said to a reporter. And he was a powerful man, president of the United States. Bill Clinton had a problem. It's well documented. The accusations are, are numerous. He has had to spend lots of money through the years trying to cover up his issues, his problems with, with ladies. But that mindset, because I could, I think is the same mindset that David had. Now, David had a weakness. 
It's very clear. We have seen that David's life is on a roller coaster. Some days he does good. Some days he does bad. Some events he handles with, with integrity, with courage, with faith. And then some issues he handles poorly as a coward, as very, very weak. And we see this happen again. It's interesting that David faced the Goliath, the giant Goliath, and defeated the giant Goliath. And now we see him facing the giant Bathsheba and he falls, uh, clearly falls into the temptation that he experiences there on that rooftop. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. David was not where he was supposed to be. David was in the wrong place. David was in the wrong place when you consider his weakness. Now, the Bible clearly said that the king was not to take on many horses, and, and David didn't have a problem with horses. Some men would have had a problem with horses, and some men would have kept for themselves in David's position all the horses that were the spoils of all the many victories that he had. But he didn't have a weakness for horses. David also didn't have a weakness for silver and gold. Now they were able to capture lots of money in their victories, a lot of money. But David always dedicated that to the Lord. He didn't have a problem with gold and silver for himself. He was content with, with all the, the wealth he had. He was content, content with his palace. He was content with where he lived. He didn't have a problem with any of that. But David obviously had a problem with having many wives. It clearly said in the scripture that the king was not to take on more than one wife. But you see David over and over and over taking on a wife after a wife after a wife. He had a problem with lust. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was outside of accountability. He was all alone on the rooftop. David did not need to be away from his men. David did not need to be in a place where he, he was responsible for himself when it came to women. And that was his weakness. And we often fall when we are in the wrong place concerning our weakness. Obviously, if your problem is gambling, don't go to Las Vegas. That's pretty clear. If your problem is too much drink, don't go to the bar. Don't go to happy hour. If everybody at work goes to happy hour and you struggle with drinking too much or you struggle with whatever happens as a result of the drinking, then by, by all means, stay away from happy hour. And you say, well, how do I let my boss know? How do I let people I work with know? You tell them up front, honestly, look, I'm no longer going to go to happy hour because it's not good for me. 
It's not good for me and my choices. It's not good for my family. Stay away from any place that is likely to impact your weakness. Now, David should have been more self-aware of his weakness. He should have understood that if he were to see a good-looking gal out someone, he needed to have some help. He needed to be sure that there was accountability in his life, that other people knew that he needed to be protected from himself when it came to the ladies. But he didn't have that protection in place because we're going to find out that after he saw Bathsheba out there, and she was a very beautiful woman, that he sent his servants, he sent his people to go and find out who she is. It should have been built in. He didn't have that problem if it's built in. If he has some accountability, it's built in. Now, if you know what your weakness is, build in some accountability for yourself. Dr. Graham's, Billy Graham's, uh, built-in accountability is, is w- wide known. Billy Graham put into place an accountability process that he could never be accused of having inpro- inappropriate relations with females in all of his travels that he took because he always took a guy with him. And so the guy could say, the guy would know, the guy would be there. He always had an answer of someone, and you know good and well, that there was always people wanting to accuse Billy Graham of something that would would ruin or harm his reputation. Because you know Satan wanted to harm the man's reputation. But he had it built in. And Ford often went with him. And others along the years would go with him. And and there was never a time that Dr. Graham would be considered alone in a situation that he was vulnerable to any accusation. It was built in. David should have built in a system for him knowing his weakness. So it's important that we know what we're weak to. It's important to know our vulnerabilities. It's important that we recognize when those trigger moments are, if it's stress, if it's work-related, if it's problems, if it's, if it's success. And David, by this time, had had lots of success. He had conquered some enemies. He had won every battle by this time. He was sitting pretty. He had an opportunity to, to, to lead, you know, just just valiantly for, for as long as God would allow. But he didn't recognize his weaknesses. And so recognize your weaknesses and don't allow yourself to be in a place you don't need to be, to be in relationship to your weaknesses. And then we move on in verse 2 through verse 5. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest... David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. That was customary back in the day. It was hot down in those houses. And so on the rooftops, you would have a balcony like many places in the world still today. The Middle East does it, Asia does it, where your front porch is on your roof. And there's a covering over the top of, of, the, 
of the top porch, I guess they would call it. That's what I would call it, the top porch. And he's out there in the midday, not where he's supposed to be. He's just woke up from his nap and he's walking out there and, and he's innocent as he can be at this time. He just looks over the city and he noticed a woman of, of great beauty taking a bath. Now, if David would have stopped right there, he would have been okay. It wasn't sin for him to notice that a woman of great beauty was sitting over there. It's not a sin to say that guy's pretty or that gal's pretty. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to notice beauty. It's a sin to go beyond that. It's a sin to think about it. It's a sin to linger on. It's a sin to go beyond the temptation either with an act or a thought or a possibility or consideration or whatever it might be, when temptation happens, it's time to walk away. But that's not what David did. So what I'm trying to say is it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to let the temptation go beyond that at any point. And we need to upfront decide, which David should have done, as we talked about, that I'm setting some real firm boundaries and if this happens, I'm walking away. If this temptation happens, I'm saying no. If this temptation takes place, I'm going to resist whatever that temptation might be. It says in verse 3, he sent right there, he's done. He committed the sin right then. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So David looked and then he made the mistake. He inquired. He sent and then he took. And then obviously there's a period of time that goes by when David is not involved with her because she discovers that she's pregnant and she sends word to David that she is pregnant. Now, David did not have to give in to that temptation. David did not have to, have to uh, he, he can't say to the guys, he can't say to anybody that, that would question him on his act with Bathsheba, he can't say, I just couldn't help myself. Now, a lot of us many times have used, do use, or will use that excuse, I just couldn't help myself. Yeah, you could. As a believer, you could. Now, as an unbeliever, perhaps you couldn't. And I'll give you that. But as a believer in Christ with the Holy Spirit, we have scripture that shows us that that excuse is never a valid excuse for us, that we just couldn't help ourselves. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Here's a good warning scripture for us. If you think you are standing strong, 
Be careful not to fall. You know, when you're most likely to fall is when you don't think there's a possibility of falling. And so the men and women that struggle with sexual temptations, the time they're most likely to give in to the temptation is when they think they're over it. They think that they won't fall. They think they won't make that mistake. That's what the scripture says here. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. Now, verse 13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Now, we may be tempted by different things, but we're all tempted. We're all tempted. Temptation is a universal problem. We're all tempted with something. We're all tempted with things. Some possibilities, it's just different for all of us. So it's a universal problem. You're not unique if you're facing a great temptation. You're not unique at all. You're like all the rest of us. We're all in it together. We all share the same struggle with temptation. That's what the scripture tells us there. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. Now that's what we've got to keep in mind. God is faithful. Regardless of how overwhelming the temptation is, God is faithful to you. God was faithful with David. It says he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. Now, this is typically misinterpreted, and this is used for problems. God won't allow you to experience more problems than you can handle. Not the case. Not the case. This is not about problems. This is about temptation. God will not allow you to experience a temptation that's more than you can stand. So we can't use that excuse. We're responsible. It says, when you think you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, you might have a problem that was more than you can deal with, and God knows that and understands that, and, and God will show his faithfulness in that process too. But there is no temptation that you face that God will not give you a way out. When David saw Bathsheba on that rooftop, if he would have backed up a little bit and says, I know this is not right, I, I need to walk away from this, God would have given him the strength to do that. There is no temptation, no temptation that God is not faithful in and that he will give us the way out. And then we see in the next few verses here in chapter 10, verse 6. Excuse me, in verse 6, chapter 11. When then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. Then Uriah arrived. David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. 
Can you imagine that? It goes beyond that, though. Now, this is un unusually, uh, you know, sketchy, dodgy, you would say. This is unusually uh, shows the pride, the ego, the out of control of David. Can you imagine that? With a straight face, he welcomes Uriah. So make small talk with Uriah. Not only does he make small talk with him, it says in verse 7 um, and verse 8, then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. So he's scheming. He's working to cover up this sin. Isn't that what man does? Isn't that what powerful people do? If it's within their ability, they don't acknowledge the sin. They don't acknowledge the wrongdoing. And they work to cover it up. And that's what David is doing. And so he makes small talk with him. He has a plan for Uriah to go home and stay with his wife so that when people begin to see that she's with child, he has it down, doesn't he? He'll say, you know, Uriah came home from the battle and he spent the night with his wife. And so David was, was going to allow that to take place, and, and, and that would cover up the sin of his transgression. And not only did he make small talk, not only he schemed, but David even sent a gift for Uriah. I wonder what that gift was. A glass of wine, bottle of wine, perhaps a, 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 a leather wine thing, you know. Uh, money. What was it? Well, we, we don't know. But David, man, how, how horrible. Almost, you could say, disgusting of David. Sleeps with a man's wife, a faithful member of his army, a man that fights for him, that wars for him. And David has this, what he thinks is this elaborate scheme that he's unfolding to protect himself at the expense of Uriah. But it says in verse 9, Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. David was not a man of accountability for this occasion. Uriah was. David fell to the temptation. Uriah considered others. David was selfish. He didn't consider others. And let's face it, when a married man or married woman commits adultery, they're being selfish. They're not considering other people. They're only considering themselves. All David is concerned with at this particular time is himself. I take it he's not even concerned with Bathsheba. He's not concerned with how she feels. He's not concerned with her future. He's not even concerned at this particular time with the child. 
And when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked in verse 10, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Uriah's got far more integrity at this point than David. And the kind of system that Uriah has in place to be a good leader of his men, to be uh, uh, accountable to his men, to, to make the right choices for the long haul he's willing to make. But David, he's not like Uriah. Well, David continues this scheme. He says in verse 12, well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. David says, it works for me. When I've got too much wine in me, my decision-making goes down the tubes. And so David probably figures that it, this should work. I'll get him drunk. We'll get him feeling good. Get him in a place where his morality will, will fall. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Uriah just wouldn't go home. If his men was in the field fighting the battles, sleeping in the fields, then that's, he was not going to sleep in his own bed. Now, a little boy had a slingshot, and he loved that slingshot, but he couldn't hit nothing with it. He was out all day long trying to hit that tree, hit that fence post, hit that bucket, and he was terrible with that slingshot. And he's going home, and it's about time for lunch. And he looks in the backyard of his grandma's house and his grandma had a pet duck. And, and, and little Johnny, he takes his rock, he pulls on back, he aims at that duck and he thinks, there's no way I'm going to hit that duck. Can't get anything. And he shoots and pops that duck right on the head, knocks it down dead. <clears throat> Man, he runs in the backyard, picks up the duck, goes out behind the barn and hides that dead duck under some wood. Goes in the house for lunch. They're having lunch. His sister's there. His grandpa's there. His grandma's there. They're having lunch. And when lunch is over, grandma says to the, his sister, honey, help me clean up the table and wash the dishes. And little sister she leans over and whispers in her brother's ear, the duck. He looks at her and goes, what? She goes, the duck. And he goes, Grandma, I'll help with the dishes. I'll help with the cleaning up. So the afternoon goes by and it's time for supper. And they had a good supper. It's time to clean up. And grandma says to the sister once again, honey, help me clean up the, the kitchen and wash the dishes. 
And she leans over, and by this time he's staring at her. And she, all she has to do is mouth, without saying a word, the duck. <laughs> and he goes, Grandma, I help, I help, I help. And she goes, well, thank you, son. Appreciate your help today. And by the way, in the morning is my house cleaning day, and so uh, I'm going to have y'all help clean the house in the morning. And the sister looks over at him again and just, he goes, Grandma, Grandma, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. All right, evening goes by, morning breakfast comes along, it's time, and he is just eat up with what he's done to his grandma's duck. And he can't stand it up more. And when it came time to clear the table and wash the dishes, he slammed his fist down on the kitchen table and he says, Grandma, I killed your duck. And she said, I know, honey. I was standing at the kitchen window when you did and your sister was around the corner. I was just waiting to, to see how long you were going to allow your sister to make you a slave. Now, sin enslaves us. And if you cover up sin, you will not get it covered enough. It will come to light. It will be exposed. And you will have to, in the end, pay the price for the sin. So, the story is, the lesson for us is this. At the build-in right now, safeguard, accountability, people in your life, decisions made up front, understanding your weakness, self-aware of what you are weak to. When the temptation comes, that's it. If the temptation goes beyond that, recognize that that is sin and it needs to be repented of, confessed, and acknowledged, and you need to walk away from it. Be sure that you learn early, early in your Christian walk, not to cover up sin because it will enslave you and you won't be able to get away from it. We're going to see as the story unfolds that David experienced harsh, harsh consequences. And all he had to do on that rooftop was just go, not for me, and walked away. Temptation. It's universal. We all struggle with temptation. We're not unique. None of us are exempt. We must learn to handle temptation in the right way. Father, help us. I pray that you help us to learn from David. You'll help us, Father, to realize, Father, the, the power of temptation, the power, Lord, of, of our enemy attacking our weakness, our weaknesses. Lord, I just pray that your will be done in our life and help us to live faithfully for you. And Lord, help us, Lord, by grace to live clean, to live forgiven, to live free of temptation that so, uh, so harms us, that's so detrimental to our relationships, to our life, to our peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, come forward.